So welcome to our Westminster Confession of Faith membership slash inquirers class. I was encouraged as, as I was making a, a booklet for Maripa last night. Um, you know, I had a, a couple, when I bought extra white booklets for the notes, I always make a little booklet for folks taking it as a formal membership class. And I got one for Josh, made one for Chad and, and, and uh, uh, Martin. I thought, ah, I'll grab a couple extra. Just, eh, I don't know when I'll need it again. I'll have it. And I didn't expect, I expected I'll be blowing the dust off of that for a while. Already I had to make another one for Rupa, so it's just encouraging to have you all here. And um, just a reminder, Mr. Renner, if you could hold on to this mic. And as we have any questions or interaction, which is encouraging, I'm going to ask to pass the mic around because I've noticed in the recordings, can't really hear people. I have it on the setting that ha partly is, uh, deliberately because it minimizes the noise in the recording, but it doesn't hear what you say much. So if you don't mind asking your question, if you don't want to be heard on the recording, then uh, tell someone next to you and they can ask it for you on the mic, but so that everyone can hear better and it can make it to the recording, okay? Uh, but we already sang Psalm 122 together, and that's talking about praying, saying, I'm so happy when they said, let's go to the house of God together to worship. And then it said many times, I pray for my brethren. I pray for the peace and felicity of my brethren. Psalm 133 is what we're going to sing now, but that's what we sang, Psalm 122. And now we want to sing what we uh, sing also on the Lord's Day, page 371, Psalm 133. How good it is to dwell together in unity, because we're going to study the doctrine of the church, and we're going to study the communion of the saints. Okay? Psalm 133. Da, Behold how good a thing it is, and how becoming well, together such as brethren are, in unity to dwell, in unity to dwell, like precious ointment on the head that down the beard did flow. Even Aaron's beard and to the skirts did of his garments go, did of his garments go. As Hermans do the do that doth on Zion's hills descend. For there the blessing God commands, life that shall never end. Life that shall never end. Notice it starts with saying how blessed it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And it gives a couple of illustrations, but then it closes. There, God's blessing is commanded. Life that will never end. It's so encouraging to just be thinking about it as brethren because, you know, a lot of people, it's like, oh, they don't, I don't think we're thinking. A lot of people, I think, are not, don't want to go to church because they don't really want to be with the brethren, you know. They have all their reasons why. But that's the opposite of the way the scriptures talk. It's about being together as brethren. Yeah, we're given all these commands, especially in the epistles, about how to try to get along until we get to heaven, right? In heaven, we won't have to struggle. We won't struggle to get along. 
the the unity of the body of Christ with Christ in heaven is spoken of an eternal idea here in Psalm 133. So we want to really focus on that as we study the doctrine of the church tonight. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25 of the church, and then chapter 26 of the communion of the saints. The second chapter is quite brief, and because we are actually going to be off the next two Wednesdays, I'm going to try to push through. Um, it might intimidate you to think I could do that because there's a lot of pages, but what I want to say is there's a lot of footnotes <laughs> that I'm not going to go through. I'll explain the reference of all those footnotes when we get started, but what I do want to also do is make sure we have a scripture reference before us, though we just sang Psalm 122. Would you please turn with me uh, to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, and... I want to look at this. It's been a while since we've been there in our exegetical sermons. I'm slowly plugging away at trying to catch up on uh, commentaries to be able to get back to preaching it. Um, but uh, you'll, I think you'll remember it pretty well. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I'll know when I'm going to stop. <laughs> but I want to start at verse 1. And you'll remember how often when we were in Philippians 2 for evening sermons, we were coming to Psalm 122 and Psalm 133 to sing. Notice uh, as Psalm 122 says, I pray for my brethren, the prosperity, the blessings, the happiness. And then Psalm 133, how blessed it is to dwell together in unity with the brethren. Okay, uh, Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of other. Others, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And uh, that's through verse 12. But what we want to highlight here is there's such a call by Paul to have unity. He's so concerned that we would give up of our own needs and desires to have unity. And uh, the main idea emphasizing that section was Humility is the way we have unity together. We have to have humility to have unity together. Often denying our own desires or needs, humbling ourselves, forbearing with one another. Um, I also want to look with you. That's kind of thinking about the communion of the saints. We want to remember that as we get together as the church, we're having our fellowship, our koinonia, our communion together. But uh, to bring us to the first chapter of our study, uh, the church... Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Then I feel like we'll have a, a scripture reference for our study through both of these topics tonight. Hebrews, right before James, chapter 10. 
Okay. Really, I have verses 24 and 25 in mind, but let me start with verse 23, please. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So this idea that we should be together is kind of a uh, something a lot of folks don't seem to understand anymore about Christianity, <laughs> but this idea of being the body is, is just so much of what Christianity is, and it will be in heaven. Christ is the head. He is saving people unto a body, a worshiping community. So of the church and of the communion of the saints. Oh, I'm going to silence my phone here real quick. Okay. Um, so I want to explain why all the footnotes. I'm not going to get into them. I'm tempted, but if I do, it's going to be a couple of weeks. What I am reflecting in a lot of the footnotes is answering folks especially in quote-unquote confessional contexts. I'm going to not name anyone now. Some of them, there's a lot of stuff our church has dealt with over the years with them directly, but we've not really been in it directly, but overlapping with different things. You're going to see a lot of quotes by David Engelsma in his book, Bound to Join, and, and then his, ba- his book that follows up that, answering a lot of objections to that book. You're also going to see a lot of quotes from Dr. Richard Bacon, The Church in the Outer Darkness. And both of these books are really arguing for the visible church, the unity, the being together in the visible church according to the way a church is in the scriptures uh, against those who are kind of saying, you know, it can be loosey-goosey, kind of not needing officers to function as a church. And um, So there's a lot of stuff there because I had to interact with that on behalf of our session with folks who were kind of interested in us for some things, but then don't aren't really confessional, especially as it gets to the doctrine of the church. Kind of a lot of mavericks out there that like to pick and pick and choose their parts of the confession and then ignore the rest. But it's a system. And as you'll see, I, I argue all of the doctrines really go through the doctrine of uh, ecclesiology, the church. We can't separate them. So I'm not going to get into those footnotes, but if you want to drill down, as I mentioned, I give you lots of suggested readings every study, and I give you a lot of footnotes. Sometimes I dabble with them. I'm, not going to, I'm trying not to do that tonight. I'm going to try to stick to the regular notes. But the footnotes are there for those of you who want to think about some of this stuff and understand some of the debates involved. Um, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir a lot of times, so I'm going to be careful not to get distracted and try not to go too late tonight. Even though we're going to have two weeks off, I'm going to try not to go too late. So I wanted to just give you a heads up. I'm not getting into the footnotes, but there's a lot, especially in this chapter, there's a lot there that I think is beneficial if you want to look at it later. That's kind of what I'm looking at with this booklet I give you is it's teaching through the confession. It's bringing out things that it's teaching. Um... And, uh, but I also have a view that I, my goal is that it'll be something that you can keep on your bookshelf at home next to your confession, be able to go back to. I, I remember that came up. I want to go back and see the notes on that. Or, you know, I wasn't so concerned or interested in this topic at the time, but now I have a reason to be. 
Uh, and I remember there was a whole bunch of stuff in footnotes about that. It's, it's meant to be there for some who at the moment may just really want to get into all the details. You can do that on your own time, footnotes and study references, suggested readings, and I'm happy to have lots of also meetings with you guys. Again, if there's anything that really jumps out to you, we can have requests to do extra classes once we're done here on certain topics. I've had one request already. Um, uh, or these footnotes are here for you for reference later if you might need them, okay? Uh, so, that being said, let's dive down into it. Chapter 25 of the Church, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 25. I open with this quote by Richard Bacon, our good friend of the Church, married the Maxwells, uh, brother in Texas. Um, he says this, he rightly quips, the modern Christian doesn't have a church home so much as a string of church hotel rooms. And that made me remember a quote. Uh, it's in the footnotes. Um, hold on one second. I'm realizing I've got to reformat this part. Um, I still got to get the references in my office, but you, you'll see enough of it down there. There's a, there's a nice longer quote I just added here, but it reminded me of R. Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, in the chapter on discipline, the church, spiritual disciplines, he laments about the ecclesiastical nomadic hitchhikers that most Christians are now. Just hitchhiking from one church to the next, never making a commitment. And he says Christianity is commitment. And uh, he's challenging men, especially to be godly men. And you know, the people that are usually the most committed in the church from the very beginning of church history, New Testament church history, are the women. And uh, the men need to be the one rising up and leading spiritually. But uh, yeah, we don't. The concern today is we've got too many uh, people who just refer to their church or keep, go to churches as different hotels along the way, or they're hitchhikers, right, from one church to the next. And there's no idea of commitment, formal commitment, service, and it's never really about serving. It's about being served, <laughs> you know. Um, let's go to section one here. We want to see that corrected tonight. Chapter twenty-five, section one. The confession reads. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered unto one, into one, under Christ the head thereof, and if the spouse, the body, the fullness of him, excuse me, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now again, there's, I give you the scriptures the confession gives there, but I won't go through them. Uh, we'll go on. So let me explain. First of all, we distinguish between the invisible church as the church triumphant. Those are the ones who are already in heaven, uh, waiting. Uh, the wheat, the elect of all ages and places that are separated from the tares within the visible church, militant. We refer to the visible church militant uh, that will be uh, separated on judgment day. And uh, so the visible church has a mixture, the wheat and the tares, right? The sheep and the goats. We don't necessarily know. God knows who is elected for sure. We can go by credible professions. That's how we operate in the visible church. Some people deny this distinction. But, uh, you know, Romans 9 would be a quick reference. Not all Israel are Israel, right? Uh, there are some within the covenant people that are that end up proving to be not the elect, not true believers. But it's within the visible church that God works, growing his body and witnessing to the world, okay? I want to ask you to turn with me to the back of these notes I handed out today. Uh, you'll see a diagram that my friend, uh, pastor, I think soon to be Dr. Keith Evans, he leads the uh, biblical counseling 
Institute at my seminary, RPTS in Pittsburgh. And uh, we studied together and we almost graduated together at the same time. We worked together at the seminary also, so we're real good friends. He gave me this years ago. And it's a very simple diagram, but I think it's helpful. You'll see it should be the last page in your notes. And it's just a big circle and a little circle inside. The little circle inside says invisible church. And by the way, I'm sorry, it's a... It might be a little awkward for you. I, I had it as two on one page, so I copied them and slit them in half. You don't have one around? I'm sorry, it must have fallen out, but Linda has it there. Um, uh, so the big circle, visible church, that's what we can see. The invisible church is within it. It's inside it, and that's what God knows for sure. Okay. So the true invisible church, the elect of God, are within the visible church. This doesn't mean there couldn't be some exceptions in mysterious and miraculous ways, depending on where people are, different parts of the world where the visible church may not yet be um, instituted. But I give you those scriptures that he, this is Keith, Pastor Keith Evans. I should update this. He's, he's not at Lafayette Reformed Presbyterian Church anymore. He's back at the seminary. Uh, and um, he's working on his, his uh, I think, PhD, if not doctorate, to, uh, he's guiding the, uh, the counseling ministry there. But 1 John 2, 19 to 20, I'm not going to turn there with you, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, and Romans 9, 6, I think that's the one I just quoted. So that's a helpful distinction that the confession is making for us, okay? Some deny that. I won't get into why I think that is, um, but uh, even overlapping in confessional circles sometimes. But we distinguish between the invisible church, uh, the church triumphant, now in heaven, whoever is already in heaven, and ultimately on Judgment Day. But see, of course, on Judgment Day, then it'll be the church invisible, invisible altogether as one. The true elect uh, only will be in heaven, and they'll have their new bodies, and there won't be any, there won't be any uh, visible church that's not the invisible church in heaven. Right? It'll all the wheat and the tares will be separated, sheep and the goats. But right now, it's it's a mixture, so that's why we distinguish. And let me get back to the notes. Uh, it is invisible to us because it has extension in both time and space. The word Catholic, uh, notice it's lowercase. It's not lar- uppercase C. It's lowercase C. The word Catholic simply means universal uh, to express its global and timeless membership. The Nicene Creed, one of the early creeds of the church, speaks of one holy Catholic apostolic church apostolic meaning built on the testimony of the apostles the apostles creed is something um, we would refer to as the earliest creed it's not technically the apostles who wrote it but it's the foundation of the apostles the main doctrine of christianity passed on to us so i believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth jesus christ is only son our lord who's conceived with the power of the holy ghost born of the virgin mary i won't go through it all because i'll probably trip up at some point but i memorized it because it was always part of worship in the lutheran church i grew up in now i'm not necessarily saying it should be part of worship but our confession does quote after the catechisms the apostles creed and says it's very good it just doesn't teach through it. But a lot of the Reformed creeds actually teach through the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And the reason I bring it up is one of the things it says is believe the communion of the saints. The resurrection of the dead, uh, life thereafter. I'm, I'm kind of out of order a little bit. But it mentions communion of the saints. It's part of the basic creed of Christianity. Okay, We're going to get to that next chapter. Um, but when we see the word Catholic, it doesn't mean what develops as what we would reject, which you'll see rejected tonight, actually, with some pretty strong words that American Presbyterians have largely gotten rid of. We keep it. Um, 
but it's a lower C. It means universal. Doesn't mean doesn't mean uppercase C Roman Catholic Church. Okay, in that context. Um, back to the notes, uh, section two, twenty-five, section two. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. I'm going to break this down a little bit with some some subletters. Let me just stick to the script. Letter A. The visible church also is called Catholic or universal as its universality too is expressed in one common head, spirit, testimony, life, profession, baptism, and reputation. That's from A.A. A. Hodge. Okay, So the visible church uh, is Catholic. It is universal uh, because of the same common profession, the same doctrine, the same practice. Yes, there's all different denominations. Yes, there's there's all different uh, kind of distinction of professions, but the main, the main thing of Christianity is usually maintain the same. And we're going to get into the, what about the variety later in this chapter, okay? Um, so in that sense, it's universal. If you, can, you can go on vacation, go working, go traveling, and a lot of times you can find a church more or less pure, as we'll see later, uh, and, and worship there. The Lord is advancing his kingdom throughout the earth, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Okay. Um, Christ is, back to the notes, Christ is advancing his kingdom of heaven throughout the world and it is visibly seen on the earth as the, quote, church militant, the visible church. These sections, by the way, this doesn't mean uh, we're picking up the sword. Literally, it means we're advancing with the sword of the spirit and we're fighting against the principalities of darkness in this world, right? It doesn't mean that uh, we're going around and want to be the Catholic church with our own military and government and, you know, world government, all that stuff. That's that's what... I think that goes without saying, but let me just say that to be safe. (laughs) Bottom of page 164. These sections of the confession teach us, number one, the nature of the church from the divine point of view, and two, the nature of the church from the human point of view. But it is not as if there were two different churches, the visible and the invisible. Now that is uh, Williamson explaining. So it's just a distinction of understanding. There's one true church, the invisible church, there's not two different churches, but there is the visible church that, can, that includes the wheat, the tares. You might even think about it in when they left Israel, there was the mixed multitude. You know, there were some that came with them, and maybe it was a little more obvious they might not be part of the church. But letter B. And, and let, let me get at what we're saying here. People can make a false profession. People can lie, uh, even lie to themselves. But you, have to, you can only go with the, what we call a credible profession. We don't know a person's heart and soul and you have to go with what they say and how they live. And of course, no one's living perfectly, everyone's growing. So it's possible some, uh, as Apostle Paul says, were of us, were with us, but were never of us, and then eventually become apostate and leave because they never were really. Okay, but that's not always something you know someone leaves apostate or, okay. Um, so you're working with a visible, credible profession uh, by doctrine and lifestyle. Okay, it doesn't mean perfect. Uh, letter B, page, top of page 165. The visible church is made up of those who profess the true religion. Uh, This profession is seen in the church's visible forms. Membership vows, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Uh, 
If these basic biblical elements are not part of one's profession, it is not credible, let alone a profession in any scriptural notion. That doesn't mean that it might not be that one becomes more reformed in their understanding and wants to improve and get it right. Uh, but generally, people who say, I'm a professing Christian, or we, I think too often I've heard somebody say of someone else, oh, they're a professing Christian. My question is, do they go to church? No, then they're not a professing Christian. Just because you want to say you want the get out of hell card free thing and you trust the gospel doesn't mean you're a professing Christian. You're a professing Christian if you make your profession in the church that Jesus Christ is your Lord and you give yourself to him. Bow the knee, confess with your tongue, and join yourself to his body. Okay? I know that might be really controversial, but we're in a, in a day in a country where individualism reigns and we think we can pick and choose whatever we want on the buffet of religion, you know, peppering a little bit of other religions and still call it Christianity and go and live our merry way however we want. And we're letting too many people go on, go on their way to hell by that way. Engels, Engelsma writes, David Engelsma, and he's one of the guys I give you a whole bunch of footnotes with, okay? He writes, and by the way, if you're getting a little uh, challenged by some things I'm saying, read the footnotes, please. <laughs> Engelsma writes, I insist that confession of Christ, which is the believer's unconditional calling, can only be done in and with a true instituted church of Jesus Christ as it is only visible, only a credible profession can be required. That is, quote, a profession of the true religion, sufficiently intelligent and sufficiently corroborated by the daily life of the professor to be credited as genuine. That's A.A. A. Hodge. Professors, now we're not talking about teachers in a seminary, we're talking about people who would be professing Christianity, professing Christ as their Lord. Professors also have, quote, their children recognized as members of the visible church by virtue of covenant headship representation. Now, more on this will come in the section on baptism. I give you a footnote there. I give you a lot of footnotes. Um, one of the contemporaries to the confession in his commentary. I give you a lot of quotes by him uh, demonstrating before we get to baptism, why children are understood, born to believing parents in the church, why they are understood as part of the church and therefore baptized. Okay, uh, I'm not going to get into that now because I'm going to get into it plenty in the topic on baptism, but I am giving you some decent footnotes in this, in this class that I won't go through that help demonstrate even now why children are born into the church are to be understood as Christians and to be treated like it, like it and thus baptized. Okay, uh, So you can read the footnotes if you want to get ready for that, but uh, that's what our confession is touching on now. Children of professing Christians, as we've already defined, are in the church, the visible church. Van Dixorn notes, quote, The children of professing Christians are God's before they are ours. The children which the Israelites who sacrificed them to pagan gods consider theirs were, quote, born for me. They were my children, God says. Ezekiel 16, 20 and 21. He says, what are you doing sacrificing your children to false gods? They're my children. Your children born in the covenant are mine. They're not yours to do with what you want. I gave them to you in the context of the church. You can't just go serve other gods with them, bring them to false religions. They're mine, God says in Ezekiel 16, 20, 21. By the way, Ezekiel 16 is a pretty powerful, beautiful vision of the church that sets up why have you acted like this. <laughs> it's an amazing chapter. God takes ownership of our covenant children. 
Again, lots of footnotes. I'll move on to letter C. The visible church is, quote, the kingdom of heaven or God. Now, I do make a note that uh, there's no distinction between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Those are synonyms in the scriptures, and dispensationalists mess around with that and make a lot of confusion. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's the same thing, okay? Um, I'll give you some scriptures to look at if you want to see that proved in the footnote, okay? Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles spoke of the kingdom of heaven or of God is at hand in the coming of Christ, such as Matthew 3, verse 2. It was inaugurated in their midst due to the incarnation of its king, Luke eleven twenty, and is now advancing, Matthew sixteen eighteen, until the consummation of it on the last day in Christ's second coming. So the kingdom of God in Christ has already been inaugurated in his first coming. It will be consummated at his second coming. He offers peace in the first coming, riding on a donkey. He comes back conquering and delivering his church from the world on a white horse in his second coming. J.I. Packer gives us our marching orders. Quote, the kingdom is present in its beginnings, though future in its fullness. The task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. The church must make its message credible by manifesting the reality of kingdom life with Christ, the new internationalism of global church fellowship and global evangelism was born. He's saying, we've got to give a witness. The visible church needs to make itself visible. We need to be bringing the gospel and influencing the world and calling people to repentance for sin and not being too comfortable with ourselves. We don't want to you know, ruffle any feathers, have people mad with us. Top of page 166, letter D, but I'd like to share something before I do. We're supposed to make ourselves visible and visibly be light to the world and salt of the earth, right? So if you don't mind my throwing this in real quick, I know I need to stick to the notes. <laughs> Debbie's always so sweet with me, but I feel like she's like, yeah, you're not going to end on time. So, okay. <laughs> but I think this would be relevant and helpful. So I get an email from Dr. Jess Stuyvesant this week, editor of Place for Truth magazine, one of the ministries of the Alliance for which I work. I started writing for, I still write for him, among other things. He's referencing Carl Truman, a professor at Grove City College, was at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he writes a lot, and he's Wrote a, written a lot of books, and he writes for some pretty well-known national things like First Things, and he just wrote an article for World Magazine. And in it, he's saying, Pride Month for the homosexuals? We Christians need to recognize how serious this is. And we need to recognize how dangerous it is that we're practically doing nothing. And he's calling on Christians to write lots of posts and articles protesting the rebellious pride parades. You might remember I preached on Sodom and Lot in Genesis, and at that time I had learned of the uh, Stonewall uprising in the 60s. It's unbelievable how much it sounds like what happened to Lot in his house with the angels. And so I wrote an article about that for him, and I'm going to write an article based on the sermon There's Nothing to Party About with one of the gubernatorial campaigns in our state of a transvestite who they also not only try to force on us in the Republican Party, although I've left it, uh, but also try to force on us through Fox News. Give me a break. We're supposed to be conservative Christian values, eh? No, we're not. It's all about money and control. And uh, so I'm going to take that sermon, turn it into article form. They want as many as articles as possible to protest 
the sinners that have hijacked the covenant token sign of the Noahic covenant, the rainbow. They've stolen the colors of God's covenant, and we don't do anything about it. Because they want to intimidate and scare us. We're the visible church. We are supposed to be visible, and that includes calling people to hear God's word, be convicted of sin, repent, and come to Christ and be saved and change. And if we are not more visible, and we just want the government to make us more cozy and throw a little Christianity on top to try to have it blessed when it's practically pagan in every way, we shouldn't be surprised when they continue to make national laws things that are against God's laws and deserving of judgment, and we're going to get it. We need to be more visible. Okay, letter D, top of page 166. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the visible church. People hate that quote. It's so important to give attention to it. There is no, this is the confession. By the way, they didn't make this up. They actually qualified and softened it a little bit. There is no ordinary, notice the word ordinary, possibility of salvation outside the visible church. Quote, it is a rare thing to find a vital, mature, fruitful believer who is not connected to other believers in Christ's church. That is Wayne Spear in his confession. I always like to give a shout out to Mrs. Ragland. He, she used to be part of the church there. And he was my professor. And part of my church I used to go to, Dr. Stevenson, still is there. This phrase reflects the statement of the early church father, Cyprian, but is qualified here with the word ordinary. And the, the comment is there is no one can have God as their father who doesn't have the church as their mother. He's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church before that stuff. It's talking about it's impossible to say you have God as your father, but you're not part of the church. Why? For the same reason that it says you can't say in the Bible, you can't say that you love God, but you don't love your brethren. You can't say you're part of the body, but you're not part of the body, Right? Okay, Christ is your head, but you're not part of the body? It's illogical. Back to the notes. It does not make sense for someone to say they are a Christian while rejecting membership in and service to Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12. It even says you can't say you don't need the other body members. I also love that it says the members that seem most insignificant are actually usually the most important. Refusing to worship Jesus together in fellowship, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Don't neglect the assembling together as, the, as is the way of some. I always like how it says provoke one another to love and good works. <laughs> Give a little holy elbow to one. Come on, where you been? <laughs> you know, or come on, let's go worship the Lord. All right, back to the notes. Jesus says people, uh, excuse me, Jesus saves people to add them to the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Mr. Or Elder Maxwell quotes this all the time. Uh, adding the church, such as should be saved. But such as should be saved are, it says, added to the church. Everything you see in the book of Acts is the church, the life of the church, right? They become fellow citizens with the saints, Ephesians 2.19. It is a family, Ephesians 3.15, and the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. All of these expressions clearly rule out the modern church practice of me, myself, and I, solo, John Wayne, Christian life and worship. Know what I'm saying? Pilgrim? I couldn't resist. 
The words in Hebrew and Greek most often referred to the church are assembly or gathering, meaning to call out or summons to be together, worshiping and serving before God. The word church, therefore, is a collective term, including the whole body of the called. That's A.A. Hodge. Now, I'll give you a little note there. Look at footnote 468. I do want to share this. John Murray writes, there is no evidence to support the notion that the, the church is to be defined as the called out ones. The biblical evidence will show that the idea is rather that of assembly or congregation. It would be more correct to say that the church is the called together ones. Now, sadly, he kind of seems to have a problem with the distinction of visible and invisible church in some of his writings, which blows my mind for guy from the Church of Scotland and uh, professor at Westminster Seminary and all that, he's wrong. It's confessional and shouldn't be challenged. But what he says here related to government of the Church of Christ is very right. You know, okay, so the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and the Hebrew word is kahal, and they are identical in their sense of meaning called out from the world, right? But not just that, called out from the world together, to be the assembly of God, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, worship. There is no idea of being called out of the world as a Christian unto oneself. It is to the church. When they are called out of Israel, they are called out of Israel to be, or excuse me, called out of Egypt, to be Israel, to have the temple. They gather in temps according to tribes, may I say for Elder Renner and Mrs. Van Leuven, nice and orderly and organized, by the way. <laughs> They're called out together, always around the tabernacle. Later, the temple, they are around God. They get their, they get their commonwealths in Israel or states, you might say, by tribes. But they're all together, and they all have to go to Jerusalem to worship. None of this, or Shiloh before Jerusalem. And they, they have to go to the proper place, right? Um, but it's always called out of the world unto one another. And I think that's getting missed. Back to the notes after footnote 468 on page 166. Individual worshipers are part of the church outside of worship, but only in covenanted relation to the whole and mostly experienced and expressed in its gatherings before Christ. Speaking of both the Old and New Testament words and descriptions of church, John Murray writes that it becomes apparent that the notion of assembly or congregation is in the forefront. It is possible for an extraordinary situation, uh, top of page 167, and now this is me, it is possible for an extraordinary situation in a nation without established churches for someone who receives the word and believes, but, quote, the church is rendered visible by the profession and outward obedience of its members. And that is John Murray. Uh, you know, we're going to recognize if somebody gets the gospel, especially in this day and age where the internet can get the gospel everywhere, you know, some world... Some nation, different places where they don't have Christ or churches might believe and be saved and therefore be part of the church. But what should be happening over time is that the Lord would build a church there and send officers. What do you always see in, in the scriptures and acts? Paul is sending elders to all these churches, right? Uh, churches have plurality of elders and people, a gathering of people. Jesus is writing in Revelation to what? The seven churches of Asia. And as we know, representing in a circle, the whole, it's for, all, it's for the church of all time, uh, the message there. But he's writing to the churches where people are gathered, serving and worshiping him. And by the way, in very difficult places to be the church. And by the way, he never calls them out of those places to go to Texas. If you don't mind my joking, uh, uh, 
He doesn't say leave San Diego. He doesn't say leave L.A. or New York City. He says be the church there and suffer for me and be a light. And I know that you're struggling for it. But it's a visible witness of the gathered people. Uh, these people become known as Christians. The norm of the church is individuals coming steadfastly in fellowship. Acts chapter 2, 42 and 47 says they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Even though the temple was going to be done away with, they got together how often? Daily. You see the Reformation happened? Guys like John Calvin and the Puritans, they're teaching regularly, daily. That intimidates me. I'm like, wow, two services on Sunday and Wednesday, I'm pretty tuckered out, you know, uh, let alone pastoring. But they would be getting daily, rather regularly, lectures, uh, all kinds of different things, getting together to study the scriptures. Uh, that's why it always confounds us when people complain they don't even want to come to an evening service. Like, well, we're not asking you to get together daily. I don't know that that was required. We require Sabbath worship, don't require Wednesday nights. But you know what's kind of neat? Our new visitors, as we've been asking for Berean spirits, very quickly they want to come to everything. And it's really encouraging. Like, ah, oh, yeah, you know. Um, that's just what naturally happens. They're getting together regularly. Quote, the Christian life rightly understood is a life in community. Wayne Spear. The visible church is God's ordained means of, quote, A, the gathering in of the elect from the children of the church or from the world, and B, the perfecting of the saints when thus gathered, Williamson. And thus is to be our chief means of our chief end. Our, our chief end is to glorify God. The chief means is the church. Also, we are required as Christians to make a public profession, and we primarily do so by formally uniting ourselves together in public worship of the triune God, include taking the sacramental badges of his discipleship. I like that phrase from Hodge, taking the sacramental badges of discipleship. That's baptism in the Lord's Supper. It relates also to membership vows. Williamson emphasizes, uh, maybe I can say this, if the communist Nazis wore a swastika on their arm, we can wear Christ on our bodies and on our tongues and be proud to be visible witnessing together, yeah? Visible sacramental badges of his discipleship. Williamson emphasizes there is a true visible church and the true church does manifest itself in the world. Jesus came in the flesh and ordained observable visible sacraments to be administered to a visible church membership who also gathered to give a visible witness in visible worship led by visible ministers. I could say elders and deacons in terms of the whole life of the church. All biblical doctrines find their visible overlap, purpose, and expression in the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. I remember in seminary class, ecclesiology, a whole class on the church. And I remember, I think I did volunteer here and said, wow, I'm just, I'm just realizing all doctrines go through ecclesiology. There's no anything without a church, right? I mean, how are we going to know about it? How are we going to live it? It's all through and about and with the church. The Bible always speaks of saved individuals in the context of corporate covenanted life. You might say, if you're not in an extraordinary situation, some people try to pretend they are so they never have to give themselves to a visible church. More on that as we go with lots of footnotes. <laughs> but um, you might say, if you read a lot of your Bible, you'd have to ignore quite a high majority of it if you were going to try to excuse yourself of being part of the church visibly, right? I mean, so much of it really doesn't apply if you're not going to be part of a church. 
and worship, right? It's incredible how much you'd have to actually let go of. Letter E. Church membership is, quote, still a matter of the utmost seriousness. Uh, that is uh, Roland Ward. Uh, to, number one, submit to King Jesus under the guidance and accountability of his ordained elders. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. How can you obey that command to obey the elders who have the rule over you if you're not in a formal covenant with them? That's why we tell people who are not in formal covenant with us, we, we're really... I mean, we can tell you you're not going to take the Lord's Supper or different things, but, I mean, there's really no formal accountability of you to us or us to you. We don't have any real right to tell you what to do. We can tell you what the Bible says to do, but we can't do anything about it. There's no disciplinary possibility if you're not in a formal covenanted relationship, right? Um, and number two, uh, you need to commit to mutual Christian service and fellowship. 1 Corinthians 12 not to formally yoke yourself visibly to the vine, John 15, is like saying you are part of the Elks Club without ever joining, while rarely attending and hardly knowing anyone at the local lodge. Uh, you guys know what Elks Clubs are. I grew up, my dad was in the Elks Club. Or you, know, you can say, I belong to the Y, but you don't actually pay dues and you never exercise there. You know, or you say, I got a Costco membership, but when you try to get into shop, you don't have a card, you didn't pay the dues. No, you're not, and you're not going to shop here, right? Uh, extremities die severed from the body. Certifying formal church membership to be received by others is seen in the Bible. What? Oh, yeah. We just have to know to look at it. Acts chapter 18, verse 27. Romans 16, verses 1 to 2. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and, 11, and chapter 11, 28. Philemon 1 and 2, 16 and 17. And one of the things I give you for suggested stuff that's on our website is a, a brief sermon audio video that explains a lot of those scriptures, that church membership. You have to certify that you're a member in the church before you're received. How do they know who you are? Paul says, take Phoebe, right? Acts chapter 16. He gives a formal letter of recommendation. Let's not miss that. He even does that for to be received back Epaphroditus and later, later Timothy, even though they know them, right? But how do you know someone's really part of the visible church? Just because they tell you so. They want to show up and pretend for a while, right? So in the scriptures, we see some kind of ability to confirm membership in the visible church for those passing through. Calvin goes so far as to say that, quote, separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. Let me read that again. Separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. Or you could say, separation from the church is no profession of faith, is no professing Christian. Van Dixhorn enjoins, people who claim to be believers and refuse to join the church in the face of clear biblical instruction and providential opportunity to do so should deeply worry us. They are like people who say they are in love but refuse to get married. Usually they want the, privilege of the privileges of the relationship without the accompanying responsibilities. Their refusal to publicly commit to Christ's church casts doubt on the genuineness of their devotion to him, as does a refusal to publicly commit to marriage. I'm pretty sure that if I asked Fernanda to marry me and she comes all the way here and we're going to say we're married and have family together, and I ask you to recognize that as acceptable, but we never actually get married, pretty sure you'd all have a problem with that, Fernanda and all of you, right? What is the main image of, we just talked about this last time, what's the main image of the relationship between Christ and his church, God and his church, Old and New Testament, marriage? 
if we're not willing to make a formal commitment to Christ and his church, why would anyone take us seriously? No one's going to take us seriously if we say we're married, but we never have actually given ourselves to formal covenant. Uh, let alone living in the same house, right? Oh yeah, we're married, but you don't live together. Well, we're married. I don't know. How are you married? Oh, I go to, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, don't you go to the house of God? No, I don't go to God's house. But you're a Christian. What? This just doesn't compute, right? All right, bottom of page 167. Engelsma would agree. Quote, that some seem perfectly content to live apart from the church is astounding. It is as if a finger were content to be cut off from the physical body or as if a bride were happy to be apart from her husband. To expect to find and enjoy salvation outside the church is to expect to find salvation apart from Christ. That's still Engelsma. Packer notes, the New Testament assumes that all Christians will share in the life of a local church, meeting with it for worship, Hebrews 10, 25, accepting its nurture and discipline, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Galatians 6, verse 1, and sharing in its work of witness. Christians disobey God and impoverish themselves by refusing to join with other believers when there is a local congregation that they can belong to. End quote. Now, R.C. Sproul says this, We must rid ourselves of the cavalier, casual attitude that we who bear the name of Christ can fail to participate in worship or in the fellowship of the body of Christ. John Murray's words here are also noteworthy, and I give you a long quote here in that indented paragraph on page 168. The corporate entity does not exist apart from the individuals composing or comprised in that entity. If the fallacy of individualism and independentism appears anywhere, it is in connection with the Church of Christ. At no point does the gravity of the abnormality and offense of individualism become more conspicuous than when it takes the form of discounting the unity and solidarity of Christ's body. We cannot abstract ourselves from the corporate relationship which inheres in the very notion of the church as the body of Christ. And we cannot abstract ourselves from the corporate responsibility which belongs to the church as a corporate entity. The corporate witness of the church is our witness and the corporate default of the church is our default. We cannot consider our own individual witness to Christ as independent of the witness which is borne by the branch of the church to which we belong. We must not take lightly the matter of severing our connection with one denomination and joining another. It is to desert the corporate responsibility which we avow in our local situation if we do not apply it in the broader context of the church as a whole. Now, by the way, um, my understanding is he did start a new denomination in Canada, so we're not saying there's not a place for that. But we need to recognize how significant it is, and you don't work outside of it. So when a new presbytery starts, they usually try to work with another presbytery, like our friends in the EPC Australia did. They didn't just start their presbytery out of nothing. They went and asked another um, presbytery to form a special uh, committee or body to help get them started with uh, ordaining and inaugurating them into that office. They didn't just start out of nowhere, okay? And um, that's important to recognize. Now, in some of the footnotes, I do provide, when is it okay to leave a church? 
you can study that. But here's the thing. If you're going to move on to another church, your membership is not in your hands. It's in the hands of your leadership. It's in the hands of Christ. So you move on, and then you have your other church leadership write a letter to the other church asking for a transfer of your membership. The letter, the, the membership is transferred in a letter, and then they have a service and receive you, and then they send a letter saying we've received them, and then you go off the rolls of the church that you've moved on from. This is recognizing the, the vital union of the Church of Christ. It's respecting Christ's rule and authority. And by the way, another reason to do that is because the other leadership in church can say, wait a minute, are these guys in good standing with you? Why have they left? Because a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times people have moved on to avoid discipline. And too many churches don't ask any questions. Uh, so there's an accountability of people between churches uh, and within denominations. Uh, we're going to get more on the uh, topic of Presbyterian denomination in a moment. Let's go to section 3, page 169. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given the ministry oracles and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit according to his promise make them effectual thereunto. Now I'm going to go through this quickly because there's a whole chapter on church government coming. Okay? We're talking about the institute of the church right now. Later we'll talk about the governing of that of that in another chapter. Jesus gives ordinances and oracles of ministry for, quote, the gathering and perfecting of the saints. Such growth will not happen outside the gathering. The nature and order of a biblical church government, Presbyterianism, will be discussed in the upcoming chapters on church censors, synods, and councils, chapters 30 and 31. Here, let it suffice to generally comment that, quote, visible association and organization are necessary to the church. There are institutions to be administered uh, and government exercised. That is uh, John Murray. Here we see that the marks of a true church are, number one, the sound preaching of the word, number two, the proper administration of the sacraments, and number three, church discipline. So sometimes in sermons explaining church discipline, I've pointed out, uh, and we'll get into this in the other chapters, but my professor, who was the president at the time of one of our classes, he pointed this out, and he said, well, if, if church discipline is one of the three signs of a true church, how many true churches are out there? It's a fair question. Section 4 of the Confession, still in chapter 25. This Catholic, again, notice lower letter C, means universal, this Catholic or universal church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less pure in them. This is extremely important to keep in mind especially as we're trying to join a denomination and have been for quite a while. It looks like we're getting close. We're in, we're in um, uh, what's the word? Not fraternal relations. Help me out. What's the, it starts with an I, I think. If I wasn't trying to think about it, it would come right out. <laughs> uh, well, we're in, we're in relations, but we're not in the formal fraternal covenant relations, okay? And then it's going to come to me in the shower. <laughs> um, affiliate, affiliate, not an I and A, okay? Um, uh, but that more or less pure is important. That helps you 
not try to be a church all unto yourself. It helps you know you need to be part of something. And that this logic extends to the idea of presbyteries and a denomination, which we'll get to in the, in the next chapters. Let me explain. The visible church is never perfect in this life, again, due to a mixed multitude, as well as progressive sanctification until heaven. There are times in history where it is, quote, more, sometimes less visible. Top of page 170. And particular churches are, quote, more or less pure. Proper doctrine and worship also is, quote, more or less purely in them. I want to explain, therefore, when I'm on vacation, I try to find the best church. I often plan my vacation around where there's a decent church. But I will look for a church, and we're not skipping worship on the Lord's Day. And if there's not a church that has a cappella psalmody, we still go to church. We don't sing if it's not the psalms. Uh, but we are respectful in how we do it. We try not to draw attention to ourselves. But there's still a preacher preaching a good gospel message. We believe this is a true church. And that's not a bad thing for the kids to learn and understand. We don't dismiss a lot of churches that don't do something we think is extremely important because they're more or less pure on certain matters. Okay. Now, are there some churches that should be dismissed as not true? Yeah, I'd never go to them on vacation. And that we're going to get to that in this chapter. But it's important to recognize, like the denomination we're hoping to join, we don't have everything in common, and our presbytery has a lot more in common than the other presbytery does. And when you get together for General Assembly, some of you are see there, you're going to see those differences more. But we work together because of all we have in common, and that includes ecclesiology. And so you work within the church, and when there are things that might need to be improved, you work within the government and church as statesmen in due process and good... Um, and careful order, God is a God of order, and you work for progress and growth. And you can be dissenting on certain issues, uh, and you can uh, then still be together. And you can express concerns and differences, and you work with them because of the majority of the good things you work together. Because let me ask you something. Are you perfect Christians? No. Could we assemble with anyone? Could anyone assemble with us if they were going to need perfection out of us in doctrine or practice? Give me a break. So let's be careful about not thinking we can't join with anybody else. It doesn't mean doctrines and practices aren't important. We've tried to find the best equally yoked as possible. You know the whole story. We're very happy where we are. Uh, but there's going to be distinctions and uh, issues in any denomination. And you don't always look to leave it. You look to reform it. Okay. By the way, the reformers in Luther, Calvin, they weren't trying to start a new denomination. They were trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. They had no interest in leaving. They, that's what usually happens. Puritans, same thing. They weren't trying to leave the Church of England on the whole. They were mostly forced out through all kinds of persecution and stuff. They were forced to do things that they couldn't do in good conscience. But they were trying to reform it and just sort of have civil disobedience on certain, really, some issues that shouldn't have been so significant. But they, they, the first impulse is not to leave. It's to reform, Okay. The confession does not encourage being, quote, less pure, but it does emphasize the vital life of the visible church and the importance of understanding our unity and union with churches throughout all lands. We should be eager to seek unity with others and major on the majors together. Uh, sometimes we can't have formal unity, but we should still have lots of organic unity and participation and support of one another, and I'm thankful that we do. Um, our own church has its, quote, lesser areas of purity, and we should consider what we can tolerate for the sake of participating in a denomination. By the way, our church over the last decade, we've reformed, we've changed on things as we better understood things. 
Presbyterianism uh, must, and by the way, it would become more confessional and biblical. Uh, Presbyterianism must, uh, most simply, is a plurality of governing elders in a local church, which naturally expresses itself in union of a plurality of ministers with representative elders from their sessions within a larger presbytery. Acts chapters 15 and 21 are important chapters to go to to show Presbyterian church government. Plurality of elders, uh, all the churches together. Okay, uh, I'm going to get into that more in the next chapters. There are too many A.W. Pinks today. By the way, great stuff, and I've quoted them plenty through sermons. But who eventually think, I can't go to church anywhere or be part of any church. There's no faithful enough, pure church. Doesn't exist, can't go. Can't be like that. If a believer, I quote, if a believer were to separate from a church or denomination because of, an every, of any and every imperfection, he could belong to no visible church at all. By the way, a lot of them start their own little house churches as uh, dictators with no, uh, uh, no accountability or governing with others. And guess what? A lot of the footnotes is dealing with those kinds of people who, after many, many years, end up leaving those churches and going back to the visible church and leaving all those people who followed them out of it. It's crazy. All right, I'm being careful not to get into the context of the footnotes. Yes, can you take the mic, please? Josh has a question. You mind passing on the mic? Uh, but uh, if you don't mind, if it's a really good question or point you have to make, don't, don't drop the mic. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh, can you push the button? Got to turn it on. Yeah. No, not that one. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah, you're fine. Can they turn into cults too in that situation? Yeah, uh, something could turn into a cult. Uh, uh, lots of things kind of come out of the church. People usually, yeah, I mean, and by the way, a lot of them came out of where I grew up in western New York. <laughs> Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, some of them could develop cults. Yeah, sure. At least a cult of personality if not a cult by virtue of changing something about Christ. Um, Roland Ward notes, failure to acknowledge the relative purity of any particular church in her pilgrim life on earth leads to schism by those seeking a purity which cannot be attained or else it leads to sectarianism. You know, another thing I appreciate, like when we go to Presbytery, you might notice this is a standard practice. You're going to see other ministers from other denominations there. They're not part of our denomination. We're in no formal fellowship because we're not part of something called Nay Park, nor do they think we need to be. Um, but people from other churches and denominations will often be invited to attend as a delegate of these other churches and denominations. That's a great thing to do. That's a great thing to do. Uh, a reformed, by the way, when we host Presbytery next year, help me remember, I should be asking uh, the Presbytery about our looking to do that, looking to invite delegates from other churches in our area to come and attend our presbytery. Okay? Uh, last sentence, page 170. A reformed church is always reforming. That's Roland Ward. Note, in the back of your Westminster Confession of Faith is a document called A Solemn Acknowledgement of Public Sins and Breaches of the Covenant, where the sins confessed and forsaken as error heresy, and schism include, quote, namely, independency and libertinism. I feel like I should read that three times and let us all think about that in silence for a while, especially for some who may be listening later on in sermon audio. I won't. We'll move on. 
But notice the repentance of those kinds of sins. Schism, independency. Okay? Uh, you know, there are some churches, really good pastors, really good churches, like in the PCA, and it's an independent Presbyterian church. That is a contradiction in terms. Okay? Their ministers are within the denomination, but the church isn't. That's a, that's a cop-out. Join. Don't take the benefits of the minister. Be part of it. Uh, David Engelsma on the Protestant Reformed Churches in America of the PRCA, known for their adamant scruples. By the way, their denomination out of Redlands, two years in a row, has supported the ministry here with significant financial support. So let's recognize that. We're very thankful for them. And we have some significant differences. Could never be formally yoked. And yet we fellowship all the time. And certain ministers are among some of my best friends and ministers we talk to to support one another in all kinds of things, family and church. Uh, they, David Engelsma rightly points out to those who would feign a purer religion in utter isolation. They were, there, was, excuse me, there was false doctrine in Israel, but there was also the preaching of the truth. So that for many years, God continued to work in Israel the salvation of the elect. In the New Testament, there was false doctrine in Corinth. Boy, a lot of us said, can you imagine having it in seminary? Could you imagine being the pastor of the Corinthians? Um, there was false doctrine in Corinth, the denial of the bodily resurrection of the saints. But this did not make Corinth a false church simple by virtue of this fact. There was heresy in the Galatian churches, the teaching of justification by faith and works. But this did not make them false churches at once. He goes on to say, churches in which there were serious errors and that were departing from the truth of the gospel, the apostles did not at once call the faithful believers and their children to separate from those churches and organize new churches. But they rebuked the sinning churches and called them back to the truth and to a godly manner of life. The same was true of the Lord's handling of the churches in Asia Minor that were departing. Talking about revelation there. Jesus does threaten a couple of churches. I might, I, might have to take, I might have to put your light out. Or I might have to puke you out of my mouth. All the churches except two of the seven, he is strongly rebuking. I mean, I don't think you would keep me as the minister if I spoke to our church like that. I mean, it's warranted and he's the Lord. But, uh, I mean, he is severe in his critiques of these churches. Two of them he's not, the suffering little ones trying to be faithful. It doesn't mean they were perfect. But even the churches that he's threatening to close down, he doesn't close down. He's giving them a chance to repent and change over serious stuff. It's a good point. Section 5 of chapter 25. Thanks for bearing with me here. Uh, the purest churches, by the way, I feel like I should speed up a little bit. Like, you know, sometimes you hear those closed advertisements and all those disclaimers and qualifications. Dad, are they really speaking that fast? I'm not really sure. Could be turning up the speed. Sometimes by mistake, I hit something on my phone if I'm watching a YouTube video and all of a sudden it's going, or, or I feel like I should speed up. But I'm going to try to stay the pace so you can understand. Thanks for, thanks for your patience. You've got two weeks off coming up. Section 5, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Where's that phrase synagogue of Satan come from? Revelation, thank you, Debbie. Revelation, Jesus says that of people who say they're Jews, but are persecuting the church. He says they're not Jews because they rejected me. 
and organizations that are pretending that they're uh, 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 an organization of Christ but are denying Christ are synagogues of Satan. And that phrase, I just want you to recognize, that's a strong phrase, but it's right out of the mouth of Christ, judging some pretending to be the church. That confession is pretty much just regurgitating scripture for us, bringing it all together in sentences, okay? Uh, Let me explain section five. The confession continues to recognize that the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. Let's never think that we're uh, perfect or that we're not always needing to examine ourselves, beloved. But it here recognizes there will be a point when branches of the visible church so degenerate into, quote, synagogues of Satan that the remnant must transfer membership if reform efforts fail. Certainly, churches that ordain women and homosexuals as pastors should be abandoned. By the way, you know, in, in one of the NAPARC denominations, I don't have to say much, you can find it easily. Look up Revoice. It's unbelievable what's happening in what's supposed to be a conservative Presbyterian denomination. Uh, as should those that... Did, now, I don't mean the Presbyterians should necessarily uh, leave everything, but those churches should be dealt with. And if it can't be fixed, I think you're going to see a pretty big exodus out of that denomination, and probably rightfully so. Let me go back to the quote. Uh, churches that ordain women and homosexuals as pastors should be abandoned, as should those that deny the virgin birth, the five solas, the resurrection, heaven, the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture, and the deity of Christ. Now, before I continue, I want to point out, uh, Fernanda, one of her concerns when she was first meeting me is, oh, Presbyterian, where she's from in Brazil, that's almost always like really liberal, almost like the Catholic Church, and denies all these. In in, in the 1920s, reflecting all the stuff coming out of Germany, uh, the church became very liberal, the PCUSA. There are others in other denominations pretty similar to it. They deny most of the basic stuff, which is to deny their confessional things they swore to, often by equivocation, to the point now where they're ordaining homosexuals. And when I went to seminary in Pittsburgh at the fifth oldest seminary, I would catch the bus late at night next to an enormous church, looks like could rival some of these Mormon cathedrals. Uh, The sidewalks actually shimmered with, I don't know what they put in those sidewalks, gorgeous and it was part of the, I think, fourth oldest Presbyterian seminary and Presbyterian seminary, where R.C. Sproul went and his, and his, um, his uh, John Gerstner, his mentor. But they left it, the PCUSA. I remember waiting at the bus, looking at a sign outside this church, welcoming people to come and walk the labyrinth. This is a pagan ritual. But it's a quote-unquote Presbyterian. So I just want to make it clear, PCUSA is a synagogue of Satan, and nobody should be in it if you're calling yourself. So there's a place for that. Get out. Okay? But there should have been a lot of reforming and ministers that dealt with it for a while. I mean, eventually, J. Gresham Mason left Princeton to start Westminster in Philly and left the Peace USA to, uh, to start the OPC because of this problem that wasn't getting fixed. Okay? R.C. Sproul, I mean, they were denying the virgin birth. They were denying the inerrancy of Scripture. They do. Okay? They were denying the resurrection. Okay? Um, R.C. Sproul warns us, we are not to be visibly identified with an apostate body. There are many mainline denominations that fit this description, yet be encouraged that, quote, there shall be always a true church on earth. Matthew 16, 18. And by the way, be thankful for them. Look for them. We want to have formal denominational relations 
and uh, we want to maintain our friendship and support with the EPC Australia who's going through challenges, the PRCA, our RPCNA brothers, uh, a fellow that went to seminary, my seminary introduced himself to me at uh, the, one of the kids' recent band concerts. He's, at, he's in the PCA. I'm going to be making an effort to get together with him soon. I appreciate him reaching out. Uh, you're always looking to have pastoral relations between pastors, churches. be great if we could have the RPs get together with us for a psalm sing again or something. We had them here years ago when J.J. Lim was here in Singapore Church, although we're not in formal relationship with them. He's close to the EPC Australia. They've been here a couple times. He preached for us. So there's not a formal relationship. We trust and know him. The RPs came to hear that too. These are good things we want to see develop as, as best we can. Mindful of our differences that may keep us from a formal, official fellowship, but we recognize the visible church and the fact that sin has made these things happen, but we, we try to do as best we can. Section 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. American Presbyterians, with their new confession, they got rid of that part. We don't. This comment, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, might help interpret and qualify issues raised earlier about chapters 23, chapter 23, sections 3 to 4. I'm not going to get into that much. Only to say Christ rules over the visible church and not through the pope or popery, nor through a bishop, prelacy, and not through the king of the state, Erastianism. That relates to stuff we talked about before and later related to other things that have been taken out of confession in America that we hold to. I think that's an important qualification. I give you some footnotes on that too by uh, um, uh, Dixon. Top of page 173. But through the plurality of elders in congregations and presbyteries, that's how the church is to be ruled. While Reformed churches today shy away from identifying the Pope as the Antichrist, we do not. In the Papist system, the office of the Pope, quote, exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God by usurping Christ's authority as mediatorial prophet, priest, and king. Van Dixhorn informs us that, quote, for decades, permission was granted for church officers to take exception to this final line. It was finally removed from mainstream American editions of the Confession in 1903, and a similar revision has been adopted by subsequent confessional American Presbyterians. Thankfully, our denomination has not changed the Confession. We recognize the Pope as the Antichrist. Uh, I give you a little bit of uh, qualification, but we need to recognize um, that that relates to the fact that as the head of the popish system, you know, there's not one pope that is the Antichrist, but the system of the Roman Catholic Church and the popish system is the Antichrist, and the pope representing them as the head at the time is that representation of the Antichrist, who wants to usurp the church, prophet, priest, and king from Christ, and does want governing of the nations of the world out of the Vatican, which is a church state. Or I should say, which is a, is a state, <laughs> you know. Okay. 
Uh, Van Dixhorn also helps see the connection and transition of thought between these two chapters. Quote, in moving from chapter 25 to chapter 26, the Westminster Confession of Faith shifts from the topic of the headship of Christ with his whole church to the union of Christ with every Christian. And that's what we switch to next, the communion of the saints. Short chapter, I'm going to try to move through quickly. You have two weeks off. Thanks for bearing with me. It'd be kind of tough to come back after three weeks and connect it since there's not a lot to say. But after every chapter, I hunt for some nice Thomas Watson nuggets for you. Before we go to the next chapter, let me give them to you. Bottom page 173. Closing thoughts on the church by Thomas Watson from the Ten Commandments. The third way to escape the wrath and curse of God and obtain the benefit of redemption by Christ is the diligent use of ordinances, in particular, the word sacraments in prayer. This is at the end of the Ten Commandments in his whole section called the Way of Salvation. Well, where do you get that stuff? In the visible church as it's administered by its ordained officers. Here's another quote uh, I was able to find. um, Oh, no, this is still from the Ten Commandments, uh, his book, The Ten Commandments. Give great attention to the word preached. Let nothing. So he's talking about being in the visible church and worship, right? Primary, primary thing. Give great attention to the word preached. Let nothing pass without special note of it. All the people were very attentive to hear him. Luke nineteen forty eight. They hung upon his lips. Lydia, a seller of purple, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Acts sixteen fourteen. Right? There was no synagogue in Philippi, so they went to where the God-fearers were at the river. They were gathered for worship because there wasn't a synagogue to go to, and Paul preached to them there, and she was saved through his preaching. The devil gives many hearers a sleepy sop so that they cannot keep their eyes open at a sermon. They eat so much on the Lord's day that they are more fit for the pillow and couch than the temple. Frequent and customary sleeping at a sermon shows high contentment and irreverence of the ordinance. It is the devil's seed time. Matthew eighteen twenty five. Uh, before I continue, in the past I have been known on occasion to bang the pulpit when people are sleeping. Oh, I've made some people mad. They're not here anymore. And they weren't necessarily the ones that were sleeping. But here's the thing. It is completely irreverent to be in the worship of God. Now, I do keep in mind certain ages and certain things of sickness, and there's plenty of times I don't. But generally speaking, I'm going to try to wake you up, because the other thing is, if you're not hearing it, it's the main means of salvation. And I'll remind you, as I have in some sermons, in some period in churches, they'd go, certain people had the job of going around with a little poker. And if people were sleeping, got a little nudge in the neck. And I said, would you prefer that or a little banging on the pulpit? I didn't feel I got a good answer in the eyeballs, but I'm pretty sure you'd rather me just bang the pulpit rather than have somebody give you a little nudge with a stick. So Better than being on the floor sleeping, right? Yeah. And as I always like to say, unlike Paul, you fall out of window at night that we're a single story. I can't heal you. <laughs> okay. Although I don't intend to keep you here to midnight. Um, be serious and attentive in hearing the word. That's what Watson says as well. Top of page 174. We're going to try to go through these sections on 26 real fast here. Of the communion of saints, chapter 26, section 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. 
And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. By the way, before I start to explain this, what always encourages me to think about is you all, all y'all, I guess if we're in Texas, right? Um, you know, big reason people keep coming back to church here is you. The fellowship, the love, the just immediate, obvious, we're not perfect, but we just love each other. And we're seriously committed not only to the Lord, but one another in terms of what the Lord says. And um, I, I think they're very thankful for the teaching here, uh, which is nothing but the Bible and the confession uh, through an earthen vessel. But the communion, the fellowship of the body, and that's what people need. Uh, what is communion? Uh, fellowship, it could be translated, koinonia in the Greek. A.A. Hodge defines it as a mutual interchange of offices between parties, which flows from a common principle in which they are united. Our fellowship with Christ means he shares with us in all our experiences, inside and out, negative and positive. That's Hodge as well. This union is legal by Christ's federal headship representation. Filial, Christ is our brother and makes his father our adoptive father, and vital, our ongoing source of spiritual life and love infused by his spirit. By virtue of our union with Christ, we have union with one another. Quote, this chapter has no adequate counterpart in other confessions. That's Wayne Spear. Kind of like adoption. You don't see this in the other confessions. This is a more mature, developed confession. This is a beautiful, sweet thing like this section on adoption. It demonstrates its author's deep concern for the life, fellowship, and mutual growth of believers as a family. This term is also used in the Apostles' Creed, the communion of the saints. Now, by the way, this isn't to say that the other confessions, especially the three forms of unity with the, with the Dutch church, doesn't have the doctrine of the church. It does. In fact, the Belgic Confession and the Second Helvetic Confession, they specifically say, without a qualification of ordinary, no salvation outside the church. But this communion, this idea of fellowship and communion, our confession is developing and bringing out, drawing out more, just like they draw out more about the covenant. It's not that it's not there in the other places, but it's developed more here, okay? We stand and live as a united people who are obliged to serve one another's, quote, mutual good, both the inward and the outward man. So sometimes we have work days at one another's homes. Sometimes when we're sick or there's a baby or whatever, we're bringing meals to one another regularly, right? We're taking care of one another. Such service reflects the ministry of the word and prayer by the pastor and elders and the ministry of mercy by the deacons. Notice all the scriptures given that use the word together. We are family. Family loves and cares for its members. And if you don't mind, in the past, I've kind of had a little fun with, we are family. I guess we could say we could sing that on our way into the building, right? It's not worship yet, but don't worry. We were not going to do that. But um, Section 2 of 26. Saints, by profession, are bound. By the way, saints means Christians, right? It's not talking about some Roman Catholic plane. The Bible calls Christians saints, even though they're sinners because of our position in Christ. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. Notice bound, very similar to bound to join, the book by uh, David Engelsma, reflecting the words of the Belgic Confession, bound, obliged, required. Uh, 
Let me start over. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in reliving relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. It occurs to me, most often people who leave our, our ass leave, often uh, they're, not, they're not very involved in the service, right? They're the ones that are late and the ones that are not as frequent attenders, not as reliable, and they're not usually very involved and the extra fellowship things, or especially serving one another. Uh, it's, us- it's not unusual that those who have all the issues and problems and like to leave somewhere else, uh, you know, they're not usually the, the, the minority that's doing most of the work and service of one another. Uh, you are bound by your profession to maintain a holy fellowship and communion. For your worship, attendance, and participation in fellowship and service blesses others, and your lack, therefore, hinders them. Before I continue, can I say this about our visitors? And uh, it's not to flatter you, but we have said, wow, how refreshing. Quickly they ask, hey, where's that food coming from Sabbath evenings? Ah, I'll bring some. They're so quick, can I bring some? Not, oh, man, I got to bring food every Lord's Day. Oh, I want to do that, you know. And... Oh, Wednesday night service? Hey, what about men's, women's studies? Can we get into that again? I mean, that, that's just what happens. They're wanting to find out how to serve and be involved. It's like, yeah, that feels like Acts chapter 2. Praise the Lord. We're not fl- trying to flatter you, and we'll have plenty of uh, growth together, sometimes painful of one, with one another. You know, this, We're not all perfect, but it's encouraging to see. Quote, being part of the body of Christ carries both benefits and obligations. Such mutuality should, be, should go beyond our own congregation through communications and financial support as we're able. Pay attention to the frequent, quote, one another phrases in the New Testament epistles. Sproul expresses what our communion in Christ together should be. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12.15. I love that. What is church communion supposed to look like? We cry with those who are suffering and crying and we laugh and rejoice with those who are rejoicing and having wonderful moments. And guess what? That's always all mixed up together in any congregation, just like any family or in every life. And that's just called how we live together as a family of Christ. We have to know each other, be involved in one another's lives for those things to happen. At least deeply. That is communion, and that is the essence of biblical community, R.C. Sproul says. Flip to the next and last page, 175. Uh, I'll explain the last thing in a moment, but if you don't mind, I'm going to reference a reference point for Fernanda again. Um, She has shared with me how when her father died her mother had to turn to other churches and denominations and had to turn to the Catholic Church for what she needed to survive and take care of her children. And the church they were in really didn't help her get involved. And she shared with me later, one of the things that has concerned here, and I'm not naming anything, uh, needless to say they're not part of it anymore, but they were for a long time. And there's some things very good to highlight but they would emphasize Christianity as spiritual and it's about teaching. It's not about physical things. Does that sound like the Bible? 
Does that sound like why in Acts chapter 6 they created the office of deacon? And by the way, we're to minister to our own first, right? We're not to be given all our resources to people who stop by, pressure us right before the service starts, lying to us so they can use it on drugs or something else. Somebody that doesn't want to sit down with us and explain their situation to us so we can also help them learn how to where they don't have to be getting into this all the time. If somebody gets mad and nasty and angry when we want to ask some basic questions, gets up and leaves, that happened on a Wednesday night about six months ago. Remember that? Basic, normal questions. All of a sudden, the person they're talking so sweet about, do you remember how much that person lied? And then you go back and you realize they didn't know who we are. They were playing us. And as soon as we ask a couple of questions before we give them a handout or let them try to sleep on one of your couches like they were trying to force upon you, all of a sudden they get up and leave, don't want anything to do with us. Except bad mouth us the next day. No, we're not going to let Christ's resources be prostituted when they are primarily to support our people in our church who have covenanted themselves and deserve our first attention. This doesn't mean we don't look for ways, and we do look for ways to support the community. Our deacon goes to the managers of the apartment complexes trying to find the people who really need it, because the people who really need it are usually never going to ask for it. And they're the ones that deserve it. And uh, we're talking about that in different ways, building a diaconate fund, okay? Uh, But, uh, sorry, I'm getting off the cuff here, but the church should be taking care of its people. That's so much a part of Christianity. What does Jesus do constantly? Half of his ministry is preaching, the other half is healing and feeding people, right? Out of, quote, compassion. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's amazing how often that's just not happening. We want to farm out, frankly, we want to farm out counseling and send our people with emotional problems to the world because we don't want to have to deal with it. And we want to farm out Go find things from the government and other things. Sometimes there's a place for that when we could be helping them learn how to have skills and job skills and things, saving. You know, we don't want to disciple people because it takes a lot of work. Pray for your officers to take our calling seriously. Discipling people how to live for Christ, thinking of knowing the Proverbs, for instance. Okay. All right. Sorry, I'm preaching here. Let me get back to the notes so you can go. (laughs) Uh, Did I read section three at the top? Okay, I didn't. Thank you. One of you, no, of course not. Let's do it now. (laughs) Section three, the last one. The communion which the saints have with Christ doth not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous, nor doth their communion one with another as saints take away or infringe the title of property which... Each man hath in his goods and possessions. So the scriptures do not teach communism. I don't think that we can say capitalism is necessarily uh, perfect either in terms of because of our sin, but it doesn't teach communism as some people try to say. So they're giving an important disclaimer here about two things. Talking about our union with God does not mean we are union in essence with him. That would confuse deity with us. That's a big thing problem. Also, talking about our obligation to serve, help one another doesn't mean we are obliged to sell everything and not have private property and resources. And frankly, if you do that, you can never help anybody. <laughs> right? Then you always need to be a burden asking someone else for help. Alright, let me read this last quote, uh, chat section. Our mystical union with Christ should be understood as covenanted, relationally united persons, such as marriage, marriage's legal body, not a mixing of natures with the Godhead. 
that's Dixon especially. R.C. Sproul points out that communion means with union and notes that the difference between Christianity and pagan mysticism is that we do not lose our personal identity and responsibility in the deity, but rather gain, quote, a heightened understanding of the self as it relates to God. Certainly the Holy Spirit is with us you know, mysteriously, uh, and 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 but the, but we're we're not mixed. There's no mixture between us and the and God. R.C. Sproul also notes the confession makes it clear that there is a difference between community and communalism. We are to show love and concern to our neighbors, but that does not require us to divest ourselves of private property. Giving our possessions to others is always volitional, never coercive. Acts chapter five. Okay, I'm going to read a couple quick quotes from Thomas Watson. I do want to highlight two things uh, coming at the end. First of all, at the very end of all the bulleted suggested readings is the our sermon called Church Membership is Mandated and Matters. I preached that right before we started this class last year. So that really gets into a lot of details. It's pretty thorough about why church membership is actually mandated by Scripture and why it matters. I give you the link. You can find it on a sermon audio page. There's a whole bunch of other good stuff there, but I I highlight that to you. It wasn't too long ago. And then, um, let's see, also the assignments for July 29th and July 6th. We're going to study chapter 27 and 28 of the Confession. You see some larger and shorter catechism uh, questions noted there to read ahead and the corresponding scriptures. Where there's an overlap, don't feel like you have to read it twice. Um, But notice it's July 29th, uh, June 29th and July 6th because... It's going to take two weeks. I did look ahead. I've already been doing that for a while. So I know a place where we're going to stop. And so you won't have any extra work for the second week. Um, But just to give you a heads up, I'm going to explain a lot in baptism, which is why it's going to take two weeks to get through it. But I want to first, I want to have the sacraments with it at the same time because it's so important to understand what sacraments are to properly understand baptism and the Lord's Supper. By the way, how many sacraments are there? Two, thank you. Not what the Roman Catholic teaches church. There's two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. In baptism, just to whet your appetite, didn't mean the pun intended, but that's kind of fun. (laughs) Debbie got it before I thought of it. (laughs) We're going to spend a lot of time on teaching why we do infant baptism. This is not to rule out adult baptism for new converts. Why we don't usually do re-baptism. Why we do not do immersion baptism, but only sprinkling. And I can't wait to teach it to you because I put a ton of work into it and I think it's important stuff. It all has meaning. As Jay Adams' book on the mode and meaning of baptism says, the mode, what you, how you do it, is very significant because there's meaning in it. And the scripture has a mode for the meaning in it. So hopefully I've wet your appetite a little bit. So that's why we're going to need two weeks to get through baptism. I give you a lot of extra stuff because that's one of the number one reason people leave us. Uh, Our new visitors, I've already said, okay, let me tell you why most people leave. They don't want to honor the Sabbath, and eventually they think they're going to be able to, I don't know, somehow have us overlook that they don't want to baptize their kids. And then when we keep saying, well, we need to study and talk about this, they leave. They never do study it with us. They never talk about it. And uh, so I give a whole lot of explanation, as I did with the Sabbath, of what we do with baptism. And then we'll look at the Lord's Supper after that, okay? But the next two times we get together, but just a reminder, the next two Wednesdays we will be not getting together. Next Wednesday is Mrs. Maxwell's uh, uh, walk in the stage ceremony. So we're going to, whoever can, we're going to go and celebrate and support her at Boboa Park. 
And then the following week, myself and a good number of us will, and all the elders will be in Chattanooga. And that's probably not how you actually say it, but we're having fun. Chattanooga, because for General Assembly. And the funny thing is I say that because it kind of sounds like Tataruga, which in Portuguese means turtle. So we're like, we're going to find a Tataruga in Chattanooga and put a sign on it. <laughs> Anyways, it's our little silly joke. Okay, so let me read for you to close with something a little more uh, spiritual and, and sober, to close with quotes by Thomas Watson on communion of the saints. <laughs> and my, my sons are expressing with raised, raised arms saying, yes, what I trust some of you might be saying, we get to go home soon. But no, I'm just joking. I know you're enjoying it and uh, thankful for you here. I'd just like to acknowledge, sorry I kept you long again. Okay, closing thoughts by Thomas Watson, communion of the saints. First of all, from the Ten Commandments, he says, faith gives us union with Christ and by virtue of this, we have communion with him and his body and blood. And of course, we're spoken of as his body in the scriptures. Now, I found this quote from the Good Shepherd online because I wanted to try to find something a little more direct. I have a list of books I'm going to go back to in my library to find some good stuff for the next time I teach the class. But I wanted to give you something else on Communion of Saints by Watson since that's become our uh, tradition here. And... Uh, if nothing else, I love the way your faces look when I read Watson quotes, so I just have to do it. I'm addicted to your response to Watson's quotes. Here we go. This is from The Good Shepherd. It is Satan's great design to set his cloven foot among God's people, to make division and contention among the sons of Zion. The devil's best music is discord. Oh, let all Christ's people, his sheep, flock together and associate in love. Those who hope to meet together in heaven should not fall out by the way. Unity is the great music in heaven. There is unity in the Trinity, and unity among saints would be a great blessing on earth. For Christians to unite is their interest and wisdom. Union is their strength. Union is their glory and their ornament. Let the sheep of Christ unite together. When the saints are harmoniously united, then they adorn their blessed shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And as I see your faces responding and underlining that, I'm, I'm glad I kept you a little bit for that. Now let's pray, and uh, thanks for your time together. We'll see you in three weeks as it relates to Wednesday nights. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, great shepherd of the sheep, head of your body, husband of your bride, the church. Bless us to love your body as you do, to sacrifice and serve one another as you have and do. And oh, Lord God, may we always have Psalm 122 and Psalm 133 on our hearts in song as we approach worship and serve throughout the week. Lord, keep our eyes on Christ and our arms around our brethren and our hands in service to you as we keep them on the plow. Thank you, for the communion of the saints. Thank you for your church. I think of what my mentor, Dr. Stuyvesant, asked me when I was being interviewed to be under care of the elders as an internship and on the presbytery. His question was, do you love the church? Let our answer always be yes, and let it be obvious in how we serve and participate, sacrificing in humility for the sake of unity, according to Philippians chapter 2. 
and not forsaking the assembly as is the custom of son, some but associating and coming together to worship and provoke one another to love and good works. Make us a brighter light as we come together. Make us a more potent and savory and, and healing and preservative of salt as we come together than we could apart. Bring us together and follow Christ ahead with the mind of Christ as your one body in unity as one bread. And we pray in Jesus Christ as his body and all your saints in communion together by union with Christ say, Amen. And uh, if you don't mind, one more time, can we say it loud together, a hearty, Amen. All right, I like hearing you all together. Okay, young and old, have a lovely night. Thanks for being here. God bless you.